Thank you for joining us on the Waymaker Church podcast today. We hope this inspires you, builds your faith, and makes a way for the new and deeper with Jesus Christ in your life. Enjoy. My name is Tanner Petty. Uh, I get the awesome privilege of being the programs director here, helping lead within Waymaker Institute, um, our residents, our interns, our academic students. Um, I honestly know, I mean, I would argue I have the best and coolest job on staff, but I'm a little biased. Uh, I'm really excited to be here. And uh, yeah, Pastor John and Tammy are still on vacation. So if you think of it, about it this week, just pray for them, even on their vacation for, you know, protection, just renewal of their spirits. Uh, like maybe maybe to revive heart as they come back and continue to lead us and everything they do. Uh, yeah, we're in this series called Main Character Moments. And today we're going to talk about the Rechabites, a people group called the Rechabites. Before we get there, we're going to start in Matthew 7. So Matthew 7, 13 through 14. That's what it says. It says, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. So if I had to give kind of an explanation of what, kind of, I don't know, the theme of my life and kind of what my flesh is, is kind of pushes me towards. It's, the theme is choosing the difficult over the easy. It's actually our theme for the summer internship this summer, right, Paul? Uh, it's been great. But my flesh kind of pulls me to the easy. My flesh wants to pull me to the wide road, the gate that is uh, a wide and open, the easy path. My, my, my flesh wants to pull me towards complacency, towards, towards apathy. But we are called as followers of Jesus to not take the easy road and not to fight on a daily basis. And I think what I want to talk about today is this idea of complacency. And I think what Jesus taught in Matthew 7, wide is the gate of complacency, if I was to kind of rework it a little bit to fit today. And I think a lot of people take the easy route, fall into complacency that leads to destruction. But narrow is the way that he has called us to, the way to follow him, the way that actually leads to life, that we can find it. And what I want to do today is talk about how we can fight the spirit of complacency to avoid the wide route that everyone else might take, but continue to walk the narrow path that Jesus has called us to. And so, again, like I said, we're in this main character moments Series. And we're taking a look at a bunch of different characters throughout Scripture who you probably have never heard of off the top of your head. Um, if you have heard of the Rechabites outside of me telling you who the Rechabites were prior to this, come tell me. I have yet to meet a person who I've interacted with who's like, oh yeah, I know the Rechabites. So if you please come up to me afterwards. I would love to meet you if you're that person. But today we're talking about the Rechabites. And I want to look at how the Rechabites can help us as a church fight the spirit of complacency. And that's the question we're going to answer. It's how can Waymaker Church overcome and fight a spirit of complacency? We're going to do so by looking at the Rechabites. Uh, let's play real quick and then we'll continue to jump in. So God, I just um, even now ask your spirit to come. Um, God, we just have a posture of receiving what you have for us. Even myself, God, would you, uh, I even open myself up to what you have for this room. Um, so God, I pray for words, for, for gifts to be enacted. Um, so would you do much more outside of what I have to say? And so even though I, I speak this moment, God, you hold this room. And so would your voice be the most clear? 
to ask your spirit to come. God, would you continue to lead us and direct us to what it looks like to partner, to continue to partner with her and partner with you in the redemption of this world. So we love you. I thank you I get to do this. I thank you for this opportunity. God, would you speak, speak through me. Just let me pray. Amen. Uh, so before we jump into the Rechabites, who I'm sure you're at this point begging to know who they are, I want to talk about, talk about the 2004 U.S. Olympic men's basketball team. So don't worry, I'm going to somehow connect these two eventually. But the 2004 men's Olympic basketball team. So if you are unfamiliar with sports, you, you can be probably uh, one of the least big sports fans you know, in this room. And you probably have somewhat of an idea of the fact that the United States is the best in the world at basketball. Like that's not a controversial statement. Um, it's not very difficult to figure that out. We created the sports, so we have a little bit of an advantage, but we are the best in the world at basketball. You know, most of the players in the NBA, which is the league's best, uh, the world's best league, come from the United States. And so there's an expectation that we win. Well, if you know anything about the 2004 men's basketball team is that they are really famous for, I would say infamous for being one of the biggest failures in modern sports history. And so if you went and Googled it, you'd see that, hey, they went to the 2004 Greek Olympics and they got the bronze medal. They took third place, which at first you might be like, oh, it's not that bad. At least they podium. They came with something. Uh, but again, the expectations for this team were way higher than just bronze medal. For context, to this point, since the Olympics allowed uh, professional basketball players to participate again in the Olympics, the U.S. had won four straight gold medals, had something like won 60 straight international basketball games, and all of them like not by a close margin. Like they dominated everybody. And so again, the assumption was that like, hey, if you take really any collection of U.S. men's basketball players, and again, this 2014 wasn't the greatest team we've ever assembled, not the most talented, but still had far and away the most talented team at the Olympics. If you just rolled out a ball, the assumption was we'll show up, we're going to beat the other team. All will be well. We'll take home the gold medal. Well, they show up in Greece in 2004. The first team they play is Puerto Rico. Uh, again, I don't know how much you know about basketball, but when I think of basketball, my first thought is not Puerto Rico. Uh, so they're not the greatest, you know, not some basketball juggernaut. Uh, and, you know, to kind of compare, they only had one NBA player on their team, whereas, again, the U.S. is the only team at the Olympics that every single one of their players was an NBA player. And so they show up. You think, oh, man, they're going to beat Puerto Rico. Well, Puerto Rico beats them by 19. It's one of the biggest, uh, like, upsets in Olympic basketball history. The U.S. goes on a few days later. They play Lithuania, also not exactly a basketball juggernaut. Lithuania beats them again. Uh, they finally, they get to the semifinal game against Argentina, and that's where they famously lose to Argentina and fail to even make the gold medal game. They eventually kind of salvage something, and they get bronze. Uh, but all in all, this was considered a massive failure for USA basketball. There is no reason that they shouldn't show up and win gold. So while there's many reasons why this team failed, uh, it's pretty well documented actually. There's a whole documentary called The Redeem Team on the team that came the next Olympics trying to redeem the mistakes of the 2004 team. But what it exposed was the spirit of complacency that had kind of run through USA basketball. Again, the most talented players weren't showing up. They weren't putting in as much resources because they just kind of assumed like, hey, we're USA basketball. We're going to show up. We're still going to win. They became complacent. The only thing holding them back from winning gold was actually themselves. In this case, the form of complacency. 
I want to define complacency really quick because it's the main thing I want to talk about today. And complacency is an overconfidence, self-satisfaction, or security that often leads to becoming unaware of potential dangers or threats. I can't think of a better way to describe what happened to that 2004 men's basketball team. Just overconfident, secure in their position, unaware of the fact that if we just show up, we might actually lose. And in fact, they did lose. They lost to Puerto Rico. They did not beat everyone handily. And so for us as as a church, uh, I think the only thing holding back that team, the 2004 team, was probably a sense of complacency, was a sense of not winning. I think as a church, one of the things that can hold us back in this next season is no different, is this idea of complacency. See, complacency seems to set in when things are going well. Rarely when the building is on fire are we complacent. Like I think if this the fire alarm started to go off, a sense of urgency would come up in us. If you're complacent with the fire going on, I would really ask you, man, what is wrong with you, right? But it's when things are going really well that complacency starts to seep in. Pat Riley explains complacency like this. He says, it is like a disease sitting on your shoulder, just waiting for you to let your guard down. And by the time you realize you've become complacent, it's often too late to avoid its consequences. Again, for us as a church, I think one of the few things that can hold us back in this next season is a spirit of complacency that can easily seep in. And the reality is things are going pretty well right now for our church. If you just objectively took like a little bit of a step back and looked around, sure, there are things that we can grow in. There's always room for improvement. There's always ways that we want to strive to get better. But if you just kind of took a little bit of a glance, like things are going pretty well. Like objectively speaking, we actually, you know, today's a little bit lighter because of summer, but overall we actually have more people coming to the church now than we did three or four years ago. We've actually grown a little bit. Even a few weeks ago, there was like a, a shortage and role changers, and we were low on volunteers, and Pastor John came up and gave this charge that people sign up to serve. And guess what? You guys, we responded. People signed up and served. This week we have four lunch work. We're going to go out and we're going to reach our community. Every day we're going to do something to reach our community. A few uh, weeks prior to that we had the community block party, and actually someone came to faith because they came to the community block party. We're going on missions trips. We have Waymaker Institute making these, these bold claims that we're going to plant churches. We're going to send people to the nations. We have Way Kids. We just had today two kids get baptized from Way Kids. We've had people do spontaneous baptisms. You know, it's easy to look at and be like, man, that's exciting to celebrate. Things are going pretty well. Well, it's usually when things are going well that complacency begins to seep in. And so today I want to address this idea of why I believe complacency is a problem and how we as a church can fight it. So again, we live in Lynchburg and honestly, as long as we have some guitars and a decent speaker and a place for people to come, people will probably show up on Sunday. Now it's a little, it's a little cynical, but it's also kind of true. Uh, and so it, it can be easy for us as a church to grow overconfident in the fact that we have people coming in or we're showing up, oh, there's some really good songs, some decent teaching and some good programs and be like, man, we are good to go. Everything is going well. Well, uh, one of my favorite quotes that was shared to me by Chris Smith, was shout out to Chris Smith. I have no idea if he's here. Um, I said this last service, he's introverted. He probably does not want you to come say hi to him, but you should go say hi to Chris Smith because he's one of the coolest people in this church. But he shared this quote with me one time and, and it like radically changed my view of things. It said, he said, 
You know, God doesn't need to make you an axe murderer. He just needs to make you ineffective. Doesn't need to make you an axe murderer. Just needs to make you ineffective. And I, you know, with decent confidence can say that I don't think we have a lot of axe murderers in the room today. I feel pretty confident saying that. You know, there's a lot of things that like, oh, I don't know, but I feel pretty good about the fact that we don't think we have any axe murderers or people trajecting towards an axe murderer in this room. But that's not, he doesn't need to make us an axe murderer. He just needs to make us ineffective. We need to ask ourselves like, man, am, am I just settling for something lesser than what God is promising and becoming ineffective just because things seem okay and decent around me? And the truth is complacency, complacency leads to an ineffective and fruitless life. An ineffective and fruitless life. So if we want to be a church that is continuing to see the things that were going on continue, if we want to continue to see God do big things, continue to build the kingdom, complacency can just make us ineffective and fruitless. So I'm talking about how we can fight that. I want to talk about how we as a church can fight complacency, a spirit of complacency. And I want to do that again by looking at the Rechabites. So we're going to be in Jeremiah 35. We're going to talk about the Rechabites. So finally, the moment you all have been waiting for, here are the Rechabites and who they are. Again, please tell, tell me if you know who they are. I would love to meet you. But Jeremiah 35, the Rechabites. The Rechabites were this unique people group that lived outside the city walls of Israel. And they're actually nomads. Uh, they're nomadic, meaning they travel from place to place. They didn't have a set home. And again, they lived outside the city walls and they were metal workers. And so you're really your only interaction with them would have been is if you needed them to come fix something of yours that was metal or you needed to buy something off them that they had made. And so they're very limited interaction with the people within the city. Uh, they're kind of the weirdos. You kind of just, you, they kind of stuck to themselves. They're really, you know, strict uh, kind of uh, intense guild of people. And so they're kind of off to the side. And in this passage, uh, Jeremiah is kind of comparing and contrasting the Rechabites and their lifestyle to the Israelites. So there's really two main groups of people, the Rechabites and the Israelites. And the Israelites are just kind of your everyday run-of-the-mill person at that time living in Judah, kind of your everyday Israelite versus comparing them to the Rechabites. And so we jump in here in Jeremiah 35, 1 and 2 and kind of see the beginning glimpses of this story and how this interaction with the Rechabites goes. So Jeremiah 35, 1 and 2, this is what it says. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord to give them wine to drink. So Jeremiah receives this word. This word is, hey, go find the Rechabites. And at this point, the Rechabites had actually moved within the city walls uh, because Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were beginning to threaten Israel. And so it was no longer safe for them to travel amongst or outside the city walls. And so they moved into the city. And so God's like, hey, Jeremiah, I want you to go find the Rechabites, bring them all the way to the side room of the temple, and we're going to throw a party. And I want you to offer them some wine, pour some wine for them. And you might be thinking, all right, uh, what's this story going to? Why is Jeremiah inviting the Rechabites to you know, to come partake, come partake in wine. So another thing about the Rechabites is they actually lived by a really distinct code of conduct. Uh, their forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, that's where they get the name, the Rechabites, uh, he gave them a decree uh, about 250 years earlier to live by three main rules. And that if you're going to be a Rechabite, you need to live by these three main rules. The first was uh, they didn't build houses. They only lived in tents. So don't build houses live in tents. 
The second was don't plant gardens. And the final one was don't drink wine. So don't build houses, don't plant gardens, and don't drink wine. So to add a little weird, even more weirdness to the story, you have Jeremiah inviting this really weird people group all the way to the temple. And again, if you had been in that time, you'd have been like, oh yeah, this is the Rechabites. Jeremiah is, why is Jeremiah inviting the Rechabites to the temple? And then you would have heard like Jeremiah offered the Rechabites wine. Like why is Jeremiah offering the Rechabites wine? And if you were a Rechabite, you'd have been like, oh, this is awesome. We're getting invited to the temple. Like no one ever talks to us. This is really cool. We're going to the temple and then it's like, hey, why did you offer me wine? You know I don't do this. Like what is, what is the point of this? And that's the question we probably should be starting with. And so that's what happens. They walk in, Jeremiah pours them the wine. They say, hey, no, we're the Rechabites. Like we don't do this. Our forefather commanded us to not build houses, to not, to not plant gardens and to not drink wine. And we've continued to stay faithful to that. And I mean, side note, like if there's ever a time to compromise on that code of conduct, like this was the moment. Hey, like it's not every day you get invited to the temple. It's not every day the prophet offers you some wine. I'm like, you know what? I think Jehonadab will understand this is the time, but they don't compromise. They say, no, this, is, this isn't what we do. And so let's continue to see why Jeremiah used them, what his goal was in this interaction. And so in Jeremiah 35, it says this, uh, 12 through 14. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem, will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? Jehonadab, son of Rechab, ordered his descendants not to drink wine and his command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefather's command. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. Jeremiah uses the Rechabites' faithfulness to symbolically confront the disobedience of Israel, the complacency of Israel. So Jeremiah finishes that interaction and he goes, hey, Israel, like, look at these people. They continue to be faithful with the call that their forefather gave them. Well, guess what? Israelites, you were also given a call of how you were to live. You were given instruction by God to be a kingdom of priests, a light to the nations. His chosen people that came with a specific way to live. We keep calling you back. We keep calling you back to this, this way of living it. You continue to not listen. You continue to disobey. Jeremiah was using the Rechabites as a wake-up call to Israelites because they'd, be, they'd begun to become complacent. They had grown complacent. In this moment, uh, during Israel's history, the king was Jehoiakim, which is the beginning of the, this passage kind of tells us that. Jehoiakim was the son of Josiah, and Josiah was a pretty good king. Josiah fixed a lot of the issues that were going on in Israel. He was known as a faithful king. And so his son Jehoiakim takes over, and things were going okay. Like, hey, we're, we're not doing that bad. We could be doing way worse. And that's kind of the Israelite mentality. But there wasn't, it wasn't just enough to be like, hey, we're doing okay. There's more that God wanted for the Israelites than just to kind of continue to do what they were doing. So Jeremiah is confronting their complacency. He actually takes it a step further. He takes it one step further as we continue in this passage. It says, therefore, this is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel says. Listen, I am going to bring on Judah and on everyone living in Jerusalem Every disaster I pronounced against them. I spoke to them, but they did not listen. I called to them, but they did not answer. If you continue through that passage, Jeremiah begins to unpack the fact, the warning of Israel was, if you continue in your complacency and in your disobedience, Babylon is coming. Like exile is coming. Destruction 
his coming to Israel. He gives them not just a warning of like, hey, repent, but also a warning of this is what's coming if you don't repent. Destruction is coming. And the Israelites' reaction to Jeremiah was to continue time and time again to just not listen to him. Again, if I warned you, if I warned you that in like five minutes this building was going to go on fire, we'd all probably leave, right? Like if there's, you know, you have to be a super complacent person and be like, you know what, I'll test it out. We'll see what happens. It's the same thing. Israel was giving this warning of this is what is about to come. And if you remember the definition of complacency is an overconfidence in our position that makes us unaware of potential threats or dangers. And often when we are complacent, we become unaware of the possible destruction or danger we might be getting ourselves into. I think what we see is that complacency leads to compromise. It's kind of the first step. You become complacent, leads you to compromise. You start making some, some, start cutting some corners, some small tweaks, letting loose in a little bit of places that you're like, you know what, I was pretty strict on this for a while, but I think I'm doing okay now. I'm going to compromise on this. And compromise always leads to disobedience. You begin to make small compromises, it always grows. And then finally, this sounds dire, but disobedience leads to destruction. That was Israel's story. Is their disobedience led to them actually being overthrown by Babylon. And it's also the story of, of us. The reality is I'm up here by grace because of God's grace in me. We're given into my own, if I was continuing to give into my own devices, I would continue to go down this path of compromise, disobedience, and destruction. When we become complacent, we drift far further than we ever realized. The picture I get is if you ever go in the ocean and you kind of swim a bit in the ocean or body surf, you hang out in the ocean, uh, you don't realize it, but you're actually beginning to like drift with the current, like down the beach. And then when you get out of the water, you're like way further down on the beach than you realize compared to where you originally got into the water. I think that's what happens in complacency. It starts off small, but we end up drifting way further down than we realize to the point where it causes destruction. And so that's kind of at, at first, kind of my warning for us as a church is, again, we, this isn't something that I think we see tomorrow, Right. We don't have this fear of, okay, are the lights going to be on tomorrow as a church? Are our doors going to be open? Are we going to be under attack by somebody? Is somebody going to allow one bigger church to exist? Like we don't have those like imminent, imminent, like urgent dangers presented to us. The dangers to us are much smaller and seep in much slower. And they're actually like Pat Riley said, complacency lurking on our shoulder, waiting for us to let our guard down. So my, my call, my plea is like, hey, let's fight this complacency. But I didn't want to just leave us with some sort of like doom and gloom warning of destruction and be like, hey, fight complacency, otherwise you'll blow your life up. All right, good luck. And then kind of leave. I wanted to call us to something greater to that. What I want to call us to is this idea of consecration. The reality is the, Israel, uh, the Rechabites, they lived by this consecrated lifestyle. Uh, now, scholars don't know exactly why, but a lot of people believe that it was to avoid the potential of falling into idolatry around them. That because they lived outside the city walls, they were actually exposed to other cities. That they lived by this consecrated lifestyle to fight the idolatry presented in front of them. And I want to call us as a church to this, this pursuit of consecration. So if you don't know what consecration is, uh, we've talked about a little bit this year. We actually had a week of consecration early on in January. But it's this idea of setting ourselves apart for special use. Setting ourselves apart. All throughout scripture, there are moments when people in scripture decide to either take on a vow or take on a fast or even consecrate themselves through maybe a ritual 
or a moment, but they're trying to set themselves apart for special use. So it's, a, it's a momentary kind of endeavor to be experience more of God's presence and to set themselves apart. So real quick, what I want to say is consecration is not about trying to earn God's love. I want to make that very, very clear. Like the most blanket statement, true thing I could say to everyone here is that God loves you. Consecration is about positioning ourselves to maybe experience more of his love. And so the Rechabites, this passage doesn't just end with Jeremiah giving this doom and gloom kind of warning to the Israelites, but it ends with him actually giving a, a, uh, a blessing and kind of a, a commissioning to the Rechabites. He says this in verses 18 and 19. He says, Then Jeremiah said to the family of the Rechabites, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. You have obeyed the command of your forefather, Jehonadab, and have followed all of his instructions and have done everything he ordered. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will never fail to have a descendant to serve me. And that last piece is key. Never fail to have a descendant to serve me. Now, this isn't just Jeremiah saying, hey, Rechabites, you guys are great. Love you guys. You know, you keep doing your thing. You guys will be good. Keep moving on. No, he, that, that, that phrase is intentional. There's a couple of things that scholars think that that phrase might mean. The first is that the Rechabites would have a, a unique access to God's presence. That actually some people think that they might have had a unique access to the temple based off their faithfulness. That God was allowing them to have a unique access to his presence compared to others in Israel because of their faithfulness. And then the second is that some people think that this is actually... Jeremiah commissioning the Rechabites to have some sort of a role in the, in the, uh, the office of prophet. That, that phrase, descendant to serve me, the phrase used for to serve me, was similar to the word used for people who served in the office of prophet. And that Jeremiah was giving the Rechabites a special authority that somebody within their people group would serve as a prophet on behalf of Israel. And so what we see is this consecrated lifestyle, this consecrated lifestyle leads to special encounters of God's presence and spiritual authority. That while complacency leads us to ineffective and potentially destruction, consecration leads us to special encounters, special encounters of God's presence and spiritual authority. And again, this is not about earning God's love. If you're trying to think about, all right, man, I'm going to create my list. I'm going to work super hard. I'm going to give it my all. I'm going to do everything I'm supposed to do. If you're really thinking, all right, I'm going to sell my house, live in a tent and not plant gardens and not drink wine. Like, man, that's kind of missing the point. The point isn't the specifics of what to do. Again, as I said before, God loves you. Okay, that's the truest thing I can say. The question, is, the question is not, does God love you? Or do you have to earn his love? Rather, are you positioning yourself in a way to receive and experience that love? It's on the table there for you. He's offered it. Question is, are we living a kind of life that allows us to receive and experience that love? And consecrating ourselves opens us up to experience that love. Consecration is not about legalism. It has everything to do about symbolism. And what I would hate for today to happen is you to leave and be like, all right, here's my list of three things to do. I'm going to do these things. Good to go. Like legalism says, if I do these things, God will love me. No, what I want us to do as a church is rather take these things that have been given to us, this, this general instruction, make it specific, but in hope of encountering more of God's love, not earning his love. 
encountering his love. And so I want to talk about a few ways that I think we can do that as a church. And then I want to do so by looking at the way the Rechabites live. Again, I think this, this story from them is, is symbolic. I do not think the, the word that God gave me for this church is not for us to all, again, sell our houses, live in tents, don't plant gardens and drink wine, not drink wine. Like that's not what God is telling us to do. But rather, I think we can take the general themes of what can be taught from their sacrifices and make specific applications to our lives. So the first one, do not drink wine. Uh, again, I'm also not making a claim that you shouldn't drink alcohol as a follower of Jesus. I don't really want to open up that can of worms right now. And so we're going to avoid that. But what we are going to say is we should symbolically look at their approach. This idea of fasting from something. And I want to actually encourage you to potentially create a rhythm of fasting in your life. Now, fasting, if you're unfamiliar with what that is, it's literally removing food for spiritual purposes. It's about starving the flesh to feed the spirit. And now every year at our church, we do a week-long fast. And there's a lot of examples in scripture of momentary prolonged fasts where you remove food for a period of time. Uh, but there's also a lot of teaching on church history that the church operated in a uh, actual weekly or bi-weekly fasting rhythm. It's actually a, a historical kind of part of how the early church functioned. And so uh, recently, I feel God kind of calling me to create a fasting rhythm in my own life. And so for the last three or four months, been fasting every Monday. And I've also called our summer interns into it. We hired them on, I offered them the job. They said yes. And I was like, guess what? We're not going to eat. Here we go. 40-day fast. I'm just kidding. We didn't do a 40-day fast. Just every Monday. So just on Mondays, we've been fasting. And that looks different for each person. And I've actually been out of rhythm of it the last couple of weeks because of travel and different things going on. And uh, what it's become for me is this idea where I only just don't eat during work. I've just left that time at work where I'm just not going to eat during work. I'm going to kind of prolong, uh, eat a little bit in the morning and then I'll eat dinner at night with my family. But during work, I'm just going to remove food. It's become this kind of like awakening of my body, body to the urgency of the day. It's like when you don't eat, you, got, you eventually feel it, right? Like you feel, you know, the lack of food in you. It's been this kind of push towards, all right, I'm going to starve my desire to immediately meet this need in my body symbolically in hopes that God would continue to really that I pursue God over the things that I want to actually meet in the moment. Like this, my flesh moves towards things in the moment. I'm going to symbolically starve that for a day just to experience more of God. And it's been this wake up for me. It's actually been one of the, I think one of the most significant things I've added to my life over the last few years. To so create a fasting rhythm. The second, uh, so they didn't build houses. And again, I'm not saying, hey, let's sell our houses and then Waymaker Commune out in that land, everyone get their tents. That's how we're going to reach Lynchburg. Uh, no. Uh, but if you can imagine, even in the first century, living in a tent is way less comfortable than living in a house. I think that, principle probably applies to the first century, definitely as it applies today. And so this is this idea of disrupting comfort, not getting too comfortable in your environment. I think for us, we need to do things that willingly disrupt our comforts. Even as a church, we can grow comfortable in just doing what we do every single Sunday. And again, people will probably keep showing up. We just get comfortable in that. But we need to willingly disrupt our comforts. And again, that can look, it's a vague, a vague instruction that can look very specific to any of you. Some of you might be physically like, hey, I'm just going to actually take on taking care of my health. I've been complacent in my physical health. I'm actually going to take that seriously. And one of the ways I'm going to seek consecration is actually take care of my whole body, my whole personhood. 
not just maybe my mind or my spirit, but how's she going to take that on? Or it might be waking up earlier or talking to people that you're not used to talking to. For me, it just looked like the simple question of, you know, in interactions I have with people on a day-to-day basis, it's just like, hey, how can I pray for you? Which then inevitably leads into a moment, an opportunity to pray for them. And so it's just allowed me to not just, you know, take the comfort of getting in and out of conversations, but maybe bringing a spiritual moment to, to really any interaction I might have. It can look like a lot of different things. But I just encourage you, think of one way you can begin to disrupt your comfort. Uh, and finally, study of not planted gardens. This one I think we have down pat. I'm, I kill all plants I touch, so I'm good to go on that one. But uh, again, this idea of uh, if you're not planting gardens in an agricultural society, you then have to depend on others to bring provision. And so for them, a lot of that came through, they had to depend on the work that they could provide that people would also then trade them things that they could not provide on this own. It was this idea of dependence, this act of dependence. And for us, I think we can live with bold faith and generosity. I think one of the ways complacency seeps in is we become dependent on the stuff that we've quote unquote provided for ourselves. You know, our house, our stuff, our, our money, our, our, you know, whatever we have, we've, you know, de- provided for ourselves, which shocker, if you are a follower of Jesus, nothing you own uh, is yours. Uh, it's all God's to this point. And you, you know, everything we've been given is a gift. And I think taking on this mentality of I'm going to live with this dependence of everything is on the table. I'm going to increase in generosity. I think it's one of the ways we can be, continue to fight complacency is we just are bold in how we give. We're bold in how we allow our stuff to be used. We become dependent on him. And so as we walk through these three ways, again, fasting, disrupting comforts, generosity, I just want to encourage you to think through one of those ways, one of those things, how you can begin to pursue this idea of consecration. And I want to close by kind of reading this passage. Uh, this is Matthew, Matthew 5, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. And it says this, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. You know, we as the church are called to be the salt and the light. You know, salt, this idea of like tastiness, it actually preserves things in this first century. But if salt can lose its saltiness and when it loses its saltiness, well, what's the point? It gets thrown out. Or this idea of, of light, of it's possible to have a light and hide it. And Jesus is challenging really us, the church, like, hey, are we going to continue to live a life that pursues saltiness, that displays our light? Or again, are we going to take the wide road, which inevitably leads us to losing our saltiness and hiding our light? And so for us, it's that choice of, man, I'm going to fight complacency and choose consecration, or am I just going to be comfortable in my situation and allow complacency to slip in? So if you're here today and you've been complacent, what's interesting is Jeremiah doesn't really give any instruction to the Israelites on a specific thing they can do. All he says is, hey, repent and confess and return who God has called you to be. 
And so today, if you found yourself in this place of complacency or beginning to drift towards complacency, the simple first step, don't, don't get bogged down by all the things you could do, you know, beyond this moment, but just simply confess and repent of your complacency. I encourage you to even take communion and use that moment of communion, of remembering Jesus' sacrifice, his life, death, his resurrection, that his body was killed on the cross, his blood shed for us. Use that as a moment to just confess your complacency and kind of re-enter this state of pursuing after, pursuing after him. And I want to close with kind of this, this idea. Um, we often think about, the scriptures teach about the cost of discipleship. So meaning, hey, Jesus says, hey, think about what you're going to give up by following me. This cost of discipleship. Uh, Dallas Willard poses this question of, we don't often think about, we think about the cost of discipleship. We don't often think of the cost of non-discipleship. What's the cost of non-discipleship? And I would guarantee you the cost of complacency is far greater than the cost of consecration. The reality is if you're going to pursue consecration, if you're going to fast, if you're going to be generous, you're going to disrupt your comforts, it's going to cost you something, right? That's how this works. Like we don't just get to hold on to everything we want to experience, everything we want to do, all of our dreams for our lives, and then get everything Jesus promises to. No, it requires sacrifice and a cost. But that cost is far less than the cost of complacency and the cost of not doing those things. The cost of just living your life kind of randomly every day today, or the cost of continuing to be comfortable, the cost of non-discipleship. Because that is the road that is wide. And Jesus warns that wide leads, that way leads to destruction. So if you're here in this room, and uh, I even think of the passage in Matthew 11, where Jesus says, hey, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden. The reality is a lot of us take on burdens or yokes in this world, the yoke of success, the yoke of self-indulgence, the yoke of, uh, of complacency that weighs us down. And what Jesus calls us to do is lay down those yokes and continue to take on his way of life because his burden is light and his yoke is easy. So that's the path we have laid out for us. And I think it's, you know, a lot of my life story has been fighting to choose the path that resists complacency and continues down the difficult way to continue to live a life that lives consecrated, that lives set apart. So I want to urge us today as a church to fight that complacency, to confess sin, repent of maybe you've begun to drift a little bit. And then you begin to pursue those things of consecration. But I also want to talk to maybe someone in the room who, who doesn't follow Jesus. Someone who wouldn't say, uh, yeah, you wouldn't say you're a Christian. And uh, the question I want to pose, and this may be a kind of a blunt question, but I just want to ask, how is that going? How is that going? And the reason why I ask that is because I truly believe, and uh, I'm a little biased, but I really believe that the best life that you can be given here on earth is that following Jesus. It's not just a ticket to heaven, but it's actually the best life here on earth is through following Jesus. And just like I said, if we in the church take on those burdens, those yokes, you know, I want to ask you what burdens or yokes are you carrying if you're in this room not following Jesus? What on you has been placed on you? Maybe by yourself or someone else. If you're in this room and you don't follow Jesus, this is the time to come 
to lay that down and to actually release the burdens that you may be putting on yourself and take on the easy yoke of Jesus. And you can do that in a really, really simple way. We actually have on the screen these words. These words are not magic. Um, these words aren't, you know, uh, they, don't, they don't answer every problem you've ever had, but just these simple words of, Lord Jesus, I know I am a sinner, but I know you are a savior who died on the cross for my sin and rose again from the dead. And then saying, now come into my life, I choose to follow you from this moment forward. Thank you for hearing this prayer and answering this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Those simple words, if you recited those words or you want to repeat those words in your own language, those simple words in that way is what brings you into the family of God and leads to salvation. So if you said those words, if you repeated those words or recited them or maybe said some version in your own words, I'd just love you to raise your hands so we can celebrate with you. Or if you're online, you can indicate online or you can text the word made new to the number on the screen. I'd just love you to, to indicate that so we can celebrate and walk alongside with you. As we continue on the series, you guys can stand. We continue in the service. We kind of move into this moment of worship. Again, I just want to encourage you in this moment to sit and ask God, hey, what is that next step for us? I think a lot of times we can think that God might be leading a confusing path for us to walk down and what it looks like to continue to follow Him. Um, the reality is He's a good shepherd who brings good instruction. So I just encourage you in this moment to open yourself up to whatever it is that, that He might be asking you to do, to give up, to confess. Just open yourself in this posture of receiving. Church, let's be a place that fights complacency and seeks after consecration. Thank you so much for joining us. And a special thank you to those who give to Waymaker Church. It is because of you that our ministry is possible. Visit waymaker.church to give now. And if you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe. You can also share it with your friends and family. Thanks again for listening. Now go make a way.